From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And, hey, if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm John Wells. First this morning, we speak with Pulitzer Prize winner Edward Humes about the bizarre world of genetic genealogy and how after three decades of one murder going unsolved, in two hours, an amateur with access to a site like 23andMe found the killer. And then a conversation with public health expert Claire Crevero, who talks about poor maternal health outcomes in this country and how that data shows that, well, health care access in rural areas is getting worse, not better. But there's a new bipartisan bill that will improve the relationship between poor maternal health outcomes and access to telehealth. Claire Crevero is the head of the public sector at a company called Datavant. These guests, when we return, you're listening to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City. Stay with us. More than 40 million Americans have made their DNA searchable for fun through sites like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. This has created what is known as genetic genealogy and a hidden world within it where ancestry sleuths can track someone down even if that person's individual DNA was never tested. Our next guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist Edward Humes, who explores this unregulated science in his new book, The Forever Witness, how DNA and genealogy solved the cold case double murder. Edward Humes, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. We're delighted to have you here. And there's so much that Lynn and I want to talk with you about, you know, how the double murder was solved, the detective that didn't give up, the unlikely genetic genealogist C.C. Moore that connected all the dots. And then, of course, going forward, the morality of all this. But before we start, can can you first explain to us how a crime scene with unidentified DNA from 35 years ago could be solved through what genetic genealogy is. And I'm not exactly sure what that is. Yeah, yeah it's a mouthful. That's uh, genetic genealogy. I think it's a term that people probably are familiar with because it's been in the news a lot. But yeah, part of, part of the story is understanding how it's so radically different from the other forms of DNA analysis that law enforcement has used. So, um, Think of it as uh, three ages. That's that's what I sort of came up to explain. And the first age of of DNA as a crime fighting tool happened in 1987, actually in, in the U.S. Um, the first time it was used in court, which coincidentally was right around the time these murders took place. So this was a process called DNA fingerprinting for for ease of use, and it's literally a fingerprint inside our DNA, inside our cells. Um, it's, a, it's a perfect analogy because it's not part of the coding sequence of our DNA. It's just sort of a, a, a divider that they're looking at for this type of analysis between the coding parts of the cell. So it's really a quick and easy way to find a unique identifier uh, inside our, our genes. And it's, it's a perfect analogy because like our you know, finger fingerprints, um, it doesn't tell you anything about that person other than uh, give them a u- unique uh, identifier. You don't know from this type of DNA whether their hair color is or what they look like or whether they're going to go bald. 
none of that's in this. So it's um, it's not a huge invasion of privacy to uh, really, in some ways, to use this form of DNA, and it works really well. Um, so when it first started out, uh, it was simply a tool of confirmation. You have a suspect, you think you got the right person, and if you have a DNA for, sample from the crime scene and their DNA fingerprint, you can either match it up and be sure you've got the right guy or you exonerate them as which was one of the first huge breakthrough uses of this form of dna was to get the wrong people out of prison as much as it was to put the right people in uh, it's a tool of exoneration uh, and exclusion so then we have the second age because that was useful but it didn't help you find the criminal and um the uh, FBI and various state crime labs cooperated on building a database, a Google search of crime, basically, that where you would store all these fingerprints. And because DNA is basically already a code, it's very easy to digitize and make it searchable. And since the mid-1990s, that's been a key uh, way of solving crimes with DNA. Um, uh, a half a million to date so far since the 90s of, of violent crimes have been solved or assisted through this kind of DNA fingerprinting. Huge breakthrough. You could probably figure out what the blind spot is. If somebody isn't in the database, you can't find them. And they only get in the database if they've been caught for something. So you have this entire other class of crimes um, that were immune to the second age of DNA searching. Uh, people who have never been caught or people who just committed one crime, even though a terrible, horrible crime, as happened in with uh, Tanya Van Kylenborg and, and Jay Cook in my book. they It was an unsolvable crime because they had DNA, but they couldn't match it to a living person or a dead person for that matter. And that's where genetic genealogy comes in. And it didn't emerge from the world of uh, forensics or crime labs, uh, researchers, it came from hobbyists. It came from people searching for their origins through these home DNA kits. You know, you get them for 69 bucks uh, online, uh, you know, uh, people get them for Christmas gifts. And it's a way of leveraging our shared humanity to find who we're related to. So this form of DNA, it does look at the coding parts of the DNA molecule. And now it's a tool of inclusion. You find people who have matching sequences in your DNA uh, that, uh, sufficient enough to show that they're related to you in some way. It could be distant relations, could go back many generations, but it's a way of building these incredible and accurate family trees. And if you combine that with the old fashioned genealogy with records and social media and oral history, you have a really powerful tool that can find people whose actual DNA has never been placed in the database, just your relatives, your distant relatives. And you can piece together this family tree, sometimes extensive ones, and find the missing links on that tree. People you don't know um, because their DNA hasn't been sampled, but you can piece together their identity from the rest of the tree. And if you plug a crime scene DNA into that system, you can find the identity of a criminal who otherwise could never be caught. And that's what happened with all these cold cases that have been solved. And that the first case that was done that brought it and was brought to trial was um, Jay and Tanya's case. And that's wow. the third age of DNA where you can find sure. anyone. <laughs> sure. And uh, 
C.C. Moore, who's an unlikely to, to help put all of this together and, and connect all the dots, she took the, the basic data and then went out and started constructing various family trees to come up with this hypothesis of hers? Yes, yes. So this case had um, been around for 30 years. Uh, generations of detectives really uh, 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 and forensics experts have worked on it with to no avail. Um, and when she got to go ahead to use her skills on the case, things unfolded very quickly. She had learned how to do this by helping adopted people find their birth families, um, foundling babies who were abandoned and, and, and where there was no clues to their identities. <clears throat> she would plug them into the these the family tree databases and kind of reverse engineer who they were. She'd go back in time to find a common ancestor between known people and the unknown person, the adopted person, and then build the tree back forward in time. And voila, you find out who their parents are, where they came from, their whole story. It's, it's a miraculous seeming process. So by the time she joined this case, this investigation in 2018, she had honed this to uh, uh, a fine art. And literally two hours after she was given the DNA profile, she had not just the, a list of suspects, she had the suspect named where <laughs> he lived, when he was born, uh, property he owned. The the detective on the case thought it was a joke when he first said, oh, sure, yeah, you got a name, right? Yeah, I got a name. Uh, he had worked on this case for 13 years. And you'd think, oh, maybe he'd feel bad about it. He was elated and, you know, basically started weeping on the spot. He gets the call on his day off, he's out walking his pug, and he was flabbergasted to find this mystery, this enduring mystery that had haunted him and the whole Pacific Northwest had been solved in two hours. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist Edward Humes, talking to him about his new book, The Forever Witness. And Edward, this is where it all sort of comes together, because as you said before, this third type of genetic genealogy now, or I guess it's it's the third type of gathering DNA, but now we call it genetic genealogy. First of all, that detective who had been studying this case for so long, and as you say, he wept, he must have been without, he must have been egoless, really, because I can't even imagine someone who spent their career trying to find a suspect for this case that went for three decades without being solved, two, in two hours, having it solved for him, essentially, you know, how how is the whole industry of solving crimes being turned, being upended by this? I don't know that it's been upended uh, as opposed to maybe augmented. Uh, this process is sort of the last resort when the conventional means uh, haven't worked. Uh, then in, in cases where you have mystery DNA, you can turn to the genetic genealogy process and there's a cost and it can be labor intensive, although, you know, C.C. Moore, the expert on this case, really kind of does it faster than pretty much anybody else can do it. Um, she's just like a savant at, at this. And it's so funny because her background is she's a actress and, and performed in uh, musical theater. Uh, and uh, commercials. She even uh, did a 
did a stint as a Barbie impersonator for Mattel at toy shows. I mean, that's her background. Yeah. But she loved genealogy and she taught herself how to do this. And uh, she saw more cold cases than anyone else on the planet at this point, which is, think about, <laughs> think about that. And the forensics community just said, you know, when she first proposed doing this, what are you talking about? You know, you're going to, these $69 test kits are going to beat our million dollar lab. You must be kidding. And uh, I guess she showed them. Um, Jim Scharf, the detective on this case in 1987, he was a patrol deputy whose area included, um, the exact spot, um, in Snohomish County, Washington, where Jay's body was found. He remembered the case as a patrol deputy. He wasn't involved in it. Years later, he inherits the, uh, he's the inaugural member of the cold case unit that the sheriff's department there launched. And he, uh, He's a remarkable person. He did more with this case than anybody else had in all the many years uh, it had been languishing. And he found new suspects and he ran the DNA and he was very inventive in the, his approach. But it, 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 it just was not possible to solve this case through the conventional means. And he had heard about genetic genealogy and was working, trying to find someone who could do this for him. He knew it was out there. He had read about these adopted children, these mystery children who had, who had learned their identities this way. And he saw before, you know, many that this had huge potential. So he was, I mean, he, he was incredibly on board to handing this off to, to CC Moore, but that wasn't the end of it either. This Nobody has ever been charged on the basis of genetic genealogy. It's more like an investigative tip at that point. You actually have to match the real criminal's DNA to the real crime scene. You can't just say, oh, yeah, he's related to <laughs> his DNA is related to something. You need proof that'll hold up in court. And so the process for him only began then of proving the case against uh, the man who was ultimately charged. Um, it's just like this is. <laughs> uh, an investigative tip uh, better than any kind of like eyewitness tip or other other lead and investigator. I mean, this was a solid lead and he just needed to create the chain of custody and the proper evidence to present it and uh, and make the case in court, which he did. It was the first case of its kind, trial so of its kind. Jim Scharf is the key player. Cece Moore, we've already talked about her a lot. And then there is this little person named Chelsea Rustad, who probably, who was obviously key to this whole thing coming together. She was the, was it first cousin of the killer? And she had probably gotten a $69 test for 23andMe or Ancestry.com. How did that all come together? Yeah, I think she won it in a Facebook contest for Halloween pictures or something. Um, yeah, it was a prize. Uh, was not saying anything she was interested. She was one of two second cousins whose DNA had been uploaded to um, a shared database where customers of Ancestry and Family Tree and 23andMe can commingle their uh, their profiles uh, and share them between companies and increases the power of the search. And that that well, website that did that was called GEDmatch, uh, and that was the key database. And, you know, Chelsea Rusted was on um, the suspect, William Talbot's uh, 
mother's side of the family, the Rustads, uh, and then the other second cousin was a Tal from the Talbot side of the family. And they were key just simply because they tied together the two sides of uh, of the family of the suspect. Um, it was, and it led to the only branch of the tree that had that shared mix, that Talbot Rustad mix of DNA. So, then finding those two second cousins were was key to see, you see more piecing together the identity of the killer. Um, it allowed her to build the family tree forward to the suspect, and actually, it got to she narrowed it down to four kids that were the children of the. Rustad Talbot marriage, but only one of them was male, and it was known that the DNA came from a male, and that's how she's narrowed it down to one rather than multiple suspects. Now, of course, the two cousins, um, Talbot and Rustad, didn't know any of this was going on until you know the case was essentially solved, and there's a knock on the door. Uh, <laughs> oh, you know, we're investigating a murder, and uh, a member of your family as our prime suspect. We'd like to talk to you about that. And it's like, what? And those that's what's happened in all these cases. You get that sometimes literal, sometimes figurative knock on the door and find out you have a killer in the family. Right. A family member you don't mm. actually know in almost every case or heard or heard of, but still it's pretty pretty jarring moment to to find out that you unwittingly aided a homicide investigation and that a family member is the target. So yeah, that's, Edward, that's the role that she played. I'm drinking a cup of coffee right now and I'm, I'm going to a meeting after this interview and I'm thinking of putting it in the sink and scrubbing it vigorously. <laughs> I, I read in your book that, that, you know, saliva, coffee, cup, the whole, I mean, you're, you're basically toast at that point. I'm, I'm interested about William Talbot. He was guarded about for, for some reason he was guarded about, um, about things that he did. For an example, he, he may have been guarded about about his DNA. And he kind of knocked this paper cup of coffee that fell out of his car. And that's what, what they got him on. But he was being very careful. Why was that? Nobody knows for sure because he's uh, he's not saying. But um, Mr. Talbot was a truck driver in Seattle, and he had no real criminal record, so he was never targeted. He wasn't on anybody's radar. But yeah, he uh, once he was identified by CC Moore's analysis, they start they had a whole uh, team following him, surveilling him uh, while he made his truck deliveries and you know went home wherever he went, waiting for him to leave something behind. They didn't want to try and get a search warrant and alert everybody that um, that he was a target. Um, and it's legal in Washington to seize abandoned property is the legal term um, that somebody leaves behind that might have their DNA on it. You can do that as the officer without a search warrant. So they followed him and finally this cup tumbled out of his, his truck cab. And as you said, crime labs love beverage cups because you know, <laughs> saliva is just full, full of DNA. It's as good as blood. Uh, yeah. And you don't need a lot, just what you leave behind when you sip that cup. So sure. it seemed that you know, he never, he was very careful not to leave anything behind, but maybe he's just meticulous. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't believe Mr. Talbot had any idea he would, he, he was under suspicion. Um, so it's hard to say, uh, he just might be a neat freak, but 
uh, or he, you know, he was very cagey about protecting his identity. He used a different address than his actual residence as his official address. And he was a ghost on social media when the rest of his family was quite gregarious and were posting on Facebook and other things all the time. Um, he he was not a presence online in any way. He was just very circumspect in all things. Um, yeah. He certainly did not allow his DNA to be tested or sampled directly. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I'm wondering about our listeners uh, who are listening to this interview and they're saying, you know, I, I, I signed up with Ancestry or 23andMe and I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. I'm in a database now. It's not a government database. It's not like a fingerprint. It's a, it's in a database of a commercial concern. And who has access to that? And who could put together trees that I'm not aware of? And 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 maybe come out and surprise me with with information about me or my family that I did not know before. I mean, I, I can imagine the look on Jefferson Davis's face when he found, find, you know, he probably went to his deathbed thinking that his secret was safe, but uh, that that didn't turn out really well for him. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, we certainly live in an age of waning privacy and having your DNA in a database and putting it there voluntarily is a big decision. And the, I think these kinds of discussions, uh, uh, all the reporting on the subject that uh, ha has taken place and will take place is really important to make sure people are sort of know what they're getting into. And, uh, you know, we all know about identity theft and credit card theft and people get your credit card numbers and run up your bills and and you have to get a new card you can't get a new dna code you know once you're <laughs> once you're hacked there you kind of that's it you can't uh, you can't that's replace you it so um a couple things though uh the big private companies like 23andme and ancestry.com they don't allow police to access their database there are a couple of companies family tree dna is one that do but they inform their customers and i believe the customers have an option of opting out of that uh, uh, you'd have to check but in, in any case there's a in, informed consent uh, process going on there with the customers now this other website i told you about jedmatch where people pool their uh uh, DNA profiles from different companies so they could search across platforms without paying for a test and all of them. And companies hate that, but the actual profiles belong to the individual so they can do whatever they want with it, right? So you're made, now you're making a conscious decision to upload it to this third type of database where you know anybody can access it. It's, it's public. Um, however, when all this got started, um, law enforcement... <laughs> The use by law enforcement was not specifically allowed. It was against the terms of service, but it was kind of an honor system sort of thing. And um, uh, the first case that, uh, well, it's, it's called what it is, violated those terms of service involved the Golden State Killer case, which is the first time the public heard about genetic genealogy. Um, C.C. Moore had refused to do this, and it was kind of ready to go for like a year on some of these cases, including Jay and Tanya's, but said, you know, we can't. It's not until the customer base is informed and gives consent. Well, in the wake of all that publicity, the uh, of the Golden State Killer um, did match, put a big announcement saying, hey, you know, 
your profiles are being used for this purpose. We can't and don't really want to stop it. But if you don't want to be part of that, now's the time to to pull your profiles from our service and and get out. And and once that happened, that's when CC Moore did her case. And of course, she has done hundreds since then. She had all these cases piled up, ready to solve. So once the the users knew that their DNA was being used in this way. Um, they felt they could proceed without being unethical. And, and that's really how it unfolded. Um, so I think people who really want to have their DNA uh, used to trace their origins and their roots can feel pretty secure with these um, pr private databases. Uh, and if they want to take it to the next step and upload it to the shared database, then, you know, they, I think everybody knows what they're getting into at this point and, uh, or should, and are okay with, with that. Now, this third thing though, these databases have been hacked. They've been accessed in unauthorized ways. You can fake profiles and get in there. And once you're a member of one of these communities, you can access other people's profiles. So there's always a risk that they will be used for nefarious means or, or sold or, you know, how much would your DNA profile information be worth to an insurer or to a lender or to an employer who wanted to minimize their risk? Yeah. Um, so there's always that possibility. How secure are we? How protected are we from from uh, being from genetic blackmail in a way or genetic uh, uh, extortion? Right. I mean, all these things are possible. Yeah, uh, and you know. Maybe perhaps we 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 could uh, be thinking about more safeguards to 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 keep that from happening. Well, it is a fascinating world. You know, over the decade that John and I have been hosting Cool Science Radio, we've talked and done interviews about the joys and the the things that people have been able to discover through genetic genealogy, albeit maybe their family secrets, but it's all been sort of positive. And then, you know, this is a very positive case. I'm sure William Talbot's family, had they known then what they know now, they would have uploaded their DNA a lot sooner, I, I would think. But it is a very interesting world full of caveats, and you help explain that. In your book, The Forever Witness, How DNA and Genealogy Solved a Cold Case Double Murder. Edward Humes, thank you so much for joining us today on Cool Science Radio. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And we will be back after these words. You're listening to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. The maternal mortality rate in the United States is by far the highest of any developed country with more than 50,000 pregnancies facing severe complications each year. My next guest is Claire Crevero. She is the head of public sector at a company called Datavant. Today we'll talk about a new bipartisan bill recently passed by both the House and Senate headed to the president's desk. It's called the Save Mom's Life, let me say that again, Save Mom's Lives Act, mapping where poor maternal health outcomes coincide with broadband service gaps. Claire Crevero, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you, Lynn, I'm thrilled to be here. Well, it's such important work that you're doing and what an incredible you know we i think we hear about 
um, bills that come through, especially when they're not bipartisan, when there's this infighting going mm. on between the sides. But this is something that everyone can get behind maternal health. Talk to us a little bit about the gaps and what's going on in a, a you know a country like ours that seems yeah. that's so developed. Oh, it's it's such a good question. It's it's a really important and timely one. So, as you mentioned. We, we have a disturbingly high maternal mortality rate in the United States. Right now we're at 23.8 deaths per 100,000 live births. And that's, that's hard to visualize as a number, as a rate. So some people say, what, what does that feel like? Well, just by way of comparison, it's the highest of any high income country. And that's overall. So that's all of all of maternal mortality is 23.8. For non-Hispanic Black women in the United States, we're looking at 55.3 per three deaths per 100,000 live births. So that's way beyond what we expect of a high-income country. So we are way out there in terms of maternal mortality. And there is a confusion about what is driving this fundamentally. Um, and, and I would just say that this bill, particularly when we talk about broadband access and we talk about that intersection with maternal mortality, there's a real focus on rural communities when, we, when we're thinking about this bill because um, 45% to 65% higher predicted maternal mortality ratios for these rural populations has really driven a conversation around what can we be doing for rural communities in the United States that are seeing particularly high maternal mortality rates? What, what might be the levers for reducing that maternal mortality? Um, so we, we know fundamentally that there's biologic reasons, there's diagnoses that lead to maternal mortality. We see postpartum hemorrhaging, et cetera, but that's for all pregnant women in all countries. It's still a bit of a mystery of what's happening for the American pregnant population? What's happening specific to rural American populations that's driving such high rates? And that is fundamentally what drove this bill and the bipartisan support for it. Fundamentally, we want to find out how can we better support these populations and could broadband internet access be a way to get telemedicine or other services to populations that are seeing these high rates? Right. Well, Claire, your your life's work, your professional work has been, you have a master's in public health. So this no doubt is something that you've worked with so much. Did you ever picture yourself working for a company like Datavan, where you're talking about data infrastructure? It's, and, and I think for the average person, we don't make that connection between public health and, and what data infrastructure can do. Absolutely. So I, I actually originally started my public health career in global public health. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa dealing, you know, I lived in a community with very high maternal mortality. Um, later in my career, what I realized, uh, particularly during the COVID epidemic, was we have real gaps in infrastructure here in the U.S. That I had spent a lot of time in West and Central and South Africa. Um, I, I came home to work on these gaps here. Um, so I did not imagine I'd be working on data infrastructure in the US. I, I was originally interested in data infrastructure elsewhere, but I think it's a real concern that right now there is still a big mystery. This is a real scientific mystery. How can we bring down this concerning rate at home in the US? And I, I'm from New Hampshire. I'm 
originally from a rural area and it, it hits home. You know, why, why is it that where I live and grew up, we are seeing this gap? And I think fundamentally to understand how we can affect and drive down these maternal mortality rates, we need better data. Better data underpins better science. Better science underpins the evidence that makes sure policies are made to ensure access to critical interventions and it ensures better clinical practice. So when I walk into a doctor's office, I am getting the best clinical care available. So data, I'm very passionate about data and working at DataVant has been has been that dedication to, to improving the data availability to ask big scientific questions to support policy and clinical intervention. So before we go into the the gaps and how we can improve patient care, I'm wondering, and I, I think a lot of people wonder about this day and age, you know, it used to be, you go back, you know, 100 years and, and you know, talking about a woman dying in childbirth was not uncommon and mm -hmm. we expect it to be absolutely rare. You mentioned really briefly um, postpartum hemorrhaging as one of the things and then and then maybe just complications during pregnancy that are not getting cared for that create some greater risk during childbirth or can you explain this world to us? Yeah, I can a little bit, you know, and I, I'm in public health, I'm not a physician, but I will I will explain a little bit about what we know. So one of the things that happened in 2003 in the United States, that's really important for that data question that helps us understand what's happening in pregnant populations. Um, what happened is there was a checkbox that was added to death certificates in the United States where we were able to check and say, this person was pregnant when they died. That really helped our data in terms of being able to establish, okay, we know that there's these preventable, preventable causes like postpartum hemorrhages, blood clots in the lungs, hypertension, high blood pressure, and blood loss. But that is just these medical reasons. So we're able to know, okay, when this person died, this is what was happening to them. At a higher level, if we think about, okay, but why did they die? That we have incredible medical care available. These are all preventable things. We are able to intervene on these things. Why did these pregnant people die of those things if we're able to prevent them? And that's where the real mystery and where we need more science. The specific conditions are driven by socioeconomic factors, racial inequalities, demographic factors like rural versus urban access to, to healthcare. So we still are teasing out. There's not one consensus around why we're not able to prevent these preventable things mm. that are happening to pregnant populations. So we know some of these pieces, we're still discovering these other parts. And the bill that passed allow for that descriptive statistics, where are we seeing maternal mortality? Where are we seeing broadband access? Could telemedicine help it help disentangle this? Could we get better preventable care for, for these populations? That, that's one hypothesis. But what we're going to need to do is go deeper. We're going to need to link data at a patient level. We're going to say, does do these individuals actually have access to broadband and end up resulting in these types of outcomes. So this hypothesis generation is now going to happen because we're going to be able to have access to that descriptive data at a high level in order to get to the real answers as to why these pregnant people are dying, we are going to need to go even deeper. So there's going to be a second step here where the scientific community continues to unpack what the causal 
uh, uh, factors are. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I still can't picture, or or I guess I'm yeah. picturing you as a young woman in the Peace yeah. Corps in yeah. Africa. And how now when you find yourself telling these stories about yeah. health care for pregnant women in this country versus Africa, you must have some really interesting stories. Yeah. Um, can you share something like that with us? Yeah, and I, I think... I mean, I will also share, I am I am today seven and a half months pregnant. So I think a lot about what I saw in West Africa, working with pregnant populations in West Africa and pregnant populations here. And I think what, what I have experienced as a pregnant person in the United States is, you know, there it is so much data <laughs> fundamentally collected on us now, you know, and what I experienced in West Africa was we had, um, you know, a certain amount of levels of care for 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 these populations. It was far less and a lot less data. So I saw things that we weren't able to ask big questions about because fundamentally there was just less data available about those populations. Um, but I I did see that fundamentally the experience is the same. It's nine months everywhere. You know, the same risk factors. That there's a there's a real. Um, equalization in this that that pregnant people experience pregnancy in, in a lot of the similar ways but there's a lot that can happen in that nine months there's a lot of things that make a certain person's experience different and even though we've been getting pregnant for millennia there's so many mysteries about it so um i think one of the the stories that that comes to mind from west Africa that i've been thinking a lot is about prenatal care and being able to access and catch things ahead of time. I lived in a household where there was a woman who was over 40 years old, pregnant with her seventh child, and getting to prenatal care required getting in a horse-drawn cart, going miles to get your blood pressure checked, get your weight checked, and make sure that the baby's heart was beating. And today in the United States, I go for that same check. It's the same three measurements for my prenatal care. Is the baby's heart beating? What's the weight? And what's the blood pressure? But I don't have to get in a cart. I don't have been able to get very quickly to a place where if any of those measurements went the wrong way, I would be able to get care. In the United States today, maybe it's not a cart, but it can still be very difficult to get those three basic measurements and quickly identify when there's a risk. So I think that was a wake up call for me that some of the difficulties I did see in terms of accessing that really straightforward measurements of care can be similarly very difficult in the US. So I, I think that would be the one story I take home. It's, it, it's a very similar experience in many ways and that it differs in very unfair ways. Right, right. And I wonder too, if a, to a certain degree, we in this country, even if we're rural and we don't have a lot of access, we just think that, well, we live in, you know, the the most developed country in the world and it's all going to be okay. And I wonder if that's part of how we really need to educate uh, people and women specifically about you know when they get pregnant to say that mm. actually this is something this is not a given that you're going to be safe during your pregnancy. Yes, yes. and I, I think one of the big things we see in the data when we start looking at pregnant populations um, in the U.S. we're getting pregnant later and later in life. We're seeing actually new risks come up. So when I saw in Senegal was we had a lot of people the average age of, I think. In, my 
community was right around 17 or 18 years old for a first pregnancy. That is not the case in the United States. We see that average age of first pregnancy increasing. We're seeing more women pregnant with chronic conditions. That's new areas of risk that I think we need to understand and we, we need to be able to talk about. And in order to do that, I think it goes back to that question, we need better data. We need to be able to say, okay, for women like me in our 30s getting pregnant, what are the risks? And in order to do that, we need to make sure that we are collecting data, that we're linking data appropriately, that we're asking these important scientific questions, and then the answers to those questions are trickling down into good policy and good clinical decision making, because ultimately that should be a conversation between me and my doctor. My doctor should have the latest science on hand, and that science really depends on better data. Yes. Okay. If you're just joining me on Cool Science Radio, I'm having a conversation with Claire Crevero. She is the head of public sector at a company called Datavan, which we'll get to in just a moment. But we're talking about the Save Moms Lives Act, which was recently passed by the House, by the Senate. It's now sitting on the president's desk. And it's about mapping where poor maternal health outcomes coincide with broadband service gaps. So I want to talk a little bit now, Claire, about Datavant and what you do. Um, this is all, we talk a lot on this show actually about healthcare and about how it is improving based on what we can do now with data. And so that's exactly what you're doing. Tell us a little bit about your company. So Datavant, fundamentally what we do is data linkage in a privacy preserving manner. So for me as a, as someone whose who's research and, and scholarly work was in epidemiology, so the study of the distribution of disease. When we want to understand something like maternal mortality or COVID or Alzheimer's, we need to better understand the experience of populations over time. What's really hard in the US is, and I can use my examples you're talking about being a pregnant person, I'm getting a lot of care in different places and to understand what my outcome is at the end of my pregnancy if i have a good or poor outcome you need to kind of niche the different chapters of my life together you need to say did she get the right antenatal care was she able to access services does she did she get covid was she able to get vaccinated all of these things are really important to my health history, and then cohorts of people at a larger level. We need to make sure that we understand these cohorts. Were they rural or urban? What, what happened to them? And is it causally connected? And what Datavant does is help link those chapters of people's history of life together. So it's able to take vaccination data, um, claims data, EHR data, social determinants of health data, and bring it together while preserving the privacy of individuals. This is something we work on with uh, the NIH. So we support the COVID cohort collaborative, this large multi-site study where we're bringing clinical data together, linking it with mortality data, et cetera. So we can ask these big questions that incorporate a number of variables that wouldn't be possible if you were just looking at one data set. Um, so that, that's, that's fundamentally what Datavant does. Interesting. Okay, you say data, I say data. What's yeah. the consensus? <laughs> I, 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 that's a good question. I think given you are on 
the radio radio i think dot i will i would go with yours but i i, I think the jury's still out <laughs> well you work in the field so i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna go with what you say data data vant okay so the save moms lives act Yes. So important and really exciting. Anytime that it's bipartisan, it shows that there is interest in serving the constituents, oh. serving the person out there, oh. especially in rural areas. We know that since COVID, you know, you and I right now are talking on Zoom. This is something that would not have happened before COVID. And it's it has really opened up a world of access through telehealth. And telehealth makes so much sense. I think even those of us who live right down the road from the hospital would much rather talk to our doctors from the comfort of our living room, sipping a cup of tea as I am. And um, so, so how... How is this access um, for rural individuals and who may have uh, broadband service mm -hmm. gaps? How is it all? What does it look like? So I think there's there's two things happening with this act. As you said, it was a Save Moms Lives Act. So we're not just looking for a nice map. I will say that that the map is really important first part. So we're going to be able to map at a descriptive level where is broadband access, where are poor maternal health outcomes. And the hypothesis here is where we're not getting broadband access, we can't get that telemedicine service that you've mentioned. And therefore, people are, are not accessing as much health care as they could. That antenatal care visit, a quick check-in, a quick emergency check-in with a physician, they're not able to access it because of this lack of broadband access. This has been a big area of focus since the pandemic, because during the pandemic, a lot of people turned to telemedicine. A lot of folks were switched to telemedicine visits because we couldn't go into a hospital. So I think there's been a, a focus on telemedicine post-pandemic for things like maternal health, where we say, oh, this could be a really important tool. And we saw during the pandemic an uptick in usage of it. To be honest, from an epidemiological perspective, we still don't know for sure if broadband is going to affect maternal health outcomes. And that goes back to the data. We haven't had enough studies to say with total confidence, this access will reduce maternal health outcomes. So this, this bill helps us with the hypothesis generation. It's going to help us at the high level say, where could we go deeper? Where can we ask those scientific questions? Where should we focus our attention first if we're going to evaluate this relationship causally between these two things. But as of right now, it's it, it makes sense. I think a lot of us look at this, a lot of policymakers, a lot of physicians look at this and say, I would better be able to, to provide services to this population if we had better broadband and this better telemedicine. But the jury is still out. And one thing I would mention is there is a fear that because of how broadband is accessed, so you have to pay for it, et cetera, there could be a widening in disparities with an increase in telehealth. And we've, we've seen this a little bit. There's a couple studies that have come out where we've noticed post-pandemic that people with resources can use telehealth. People who need those resources the most, the most vulnerable, can't get to that telehealth service, even if broadband is available. So we're going to have to keep an eye on that as we expand broadband service or as we look at the data that's going to be available as a result of this act. Well, it's so interesting that in developing countries, um, and I'm thinking of, I had a little list in my head about the countries that have free broadband access. Yes. 
for every yes. individual and there are countries that you would think that that would never happen in and how could how can we not offer that to every individual in this country free wi-fi access Oh, absolutely. And that that would really take care of that issue I just mentioned. That would really help us. And, and I think um, there's a lot of researchers who are very concerned at that, that gap that may widen if we start switching everyone to broadband serviced telehealth yeah. services. Um, and I, I completely agree with you. And what I saw um, what I what I saw in in rural Senegal was exactly that. You know, um, it was much cheaper to access internet services and um, than it is in the United States. And as a result, you saw more people being able to access it. If it's free, you can only imagine how what that would do for access and then what people would do with it for health services. Mm -hmm. A quick question about rural health care. It would seem to me that in you know, most little towns throughout America that they have some sort of clinic or something to be able to assure to pregnant women that they could have those three tests, you know, that you were talking about, the blood pressure and the, you know, all of the, the basic things. Are, do we not, what's happening to rural clinics? So a lot of rural areas are serviced by something that's called critical access hospitals. And unfortunately, a lot of these hospitals are closing at a disturbing rate. Um, there's a new report by the American Hospital Association recently that outlined some of the causes for 136 rural hospital closures. And that is, there's the finances are very hard, low reimbursement, staffing issues, financial challenges because of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, expenses have gone up for labor, et cetera. And this, I think as we talk about maternal health, this directly affects obstetric services. So care for, for, for pregnant people because they'll cut those services. Before they close, they'll cut, start cutting services. And if you cut obstetric services, it doesn't mean people stop getting pregnant. It doesn't mean women start getting pregnant. It just means that if I am in a rural area and I have a critical emergency with my pregnancy, the services are not going to be there. And that is, you can directly connect that to outcomes um, of, of concern. And, and I think that's where telemedicine, the big question is we see these hospital closures, can telemedicine help bridge some of that gap? So if someone had a high risk incident, they're nervous about what might be happening, or they see a warning sign of something that could get worse. If they were able to access telemedicine because their critical access hospital had closed in that rural area, maybe that could help bridge some of the gaps that we're seeing result from these critical access hospital closures. Again, we're going to need data. We're going to need better data at the line level. We're going to have to say all oh, these cohort of, of individuals who didn't have access to that critical hospital but did have broadband were they able to get care? Um, so we're not going to be able to get that right away from these descriptive level statistics, but we certainly will know where to look now that we have some of these mappings. Yeah. Well, it is such an interesting and important topic. And for you as a uh, pregnant woman yeah. <laughs> in data, you really have to be just so, I, I can tell yeah. your enthusiasm for this topic is really palpable. So we're out of time. Claire Cravero uh, is the uh, head of public sector at DataVant. And Claire, thank you so much for joining me on Cool Science Radio. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Lynn. Thanks for tuning in to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City. Stay tuned. We'll get an update from our 
News Director Michelle Dininger about the crash inbound on SR 224. It's by the White Barn. Traffic's being redirected through one lane in the middle of the street. She'll give you a little bit more on that. Lots of wind hold, traffic backups, not only 224, but Highway 40. Stay tuned. We'll go to Michelle after NPR News.